throughout history, there have been two, two things that distinguished the people of God from others. Those things were the personal presence of God and the word of God. Whether it was the Old Testament nation of Israel, the New Testament church, the people of God were identified by their devotion, by the presence of God in their lives, and by their devotion to the word of God. In fact, other religions have been known to call Christians or disciples of Jesus to refer to them as people of the book. Now, since God's word has always been important to the people of God, Satan's attacks have usually started and focused on God's word. Our first introduction to Satan is in the Garden of Eden when he comes to Adam and Eve. And he says, has God really said his mission was to convince them to sin against God, uh, really to, by, by disbelieving God's word. He started this by first casting doubt on God's word, has God really said. Then he denied the, the accuracy, the truth of God's word. He contradicted it, you will not surely die. And then he disparaged God's character by making them think God was keeping them from something good. Satan knew that if he could convince them to, to doubt God's word, then he convinced them to sin against God and he could bring death and destruction into their life. This is always his goal. This is always his plan. And his plan at that point worked perfectly. Satan's seeds of doubt led to Adam and Eve sinning against God. Humanity fell into sin. The world broke and everything went sideways from that moment on. The plan worked so well that Satan has continued to, to attack God's word throughout history. Throughout history, different people have tried to take and keep the word of God out of the hands of the people of God. Probably the most successful attempt at this in any sort of recent history came at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. For many years uh, before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church kept the Word of God from being translated into the language of the common people. Instead, they had it translated into Latin, which was the language basically only the priests could read. Their official position was the common person was just not smart enough to be able to read and accurately understand God's Word, and they needed the priest to read and interpret God's Word for them. Now, during this time, the common people were initially kept ignorant of what God had said or intentionally kept ignorant about what God had said in his word. One of the first cracks against this oppression came on October 31st, 1517, when a monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther's 95 theses was a protest against what he considered to be clerical abuses, especially regarding indulgences. Indulgences were the Roman Catholic practice of selling the remission of sin as part of a fundraising campaign uh, commissioned by Pope Leo X to finance the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The basic idea was if you paid a certain amount of money to the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope himself would absolve your loved one of their sins and get them out of purgatory and usher them into heaven. I think, but I'm not 100% sure, but I feel confident you could also buy indulgences for yourself keep you out of purgatory to ensure your place in heaven. In his 95 Theses, Luther argued this was a gross violation of confession and penance. In 1521, Luther was summoned to the city of Worms uh, in Germany for what is now called the Diet of Worms. By this time, Luther had already written several books contradicting Roman Catholic doctrine. Not only the doctrine of indulgences, but also that of papal rule. Luther also now insisted salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was called in and he was asked if these books were written by him. He said they were. They asked him if he was ready to renounce the heresy contained in these books. 
Luther requested more time before giving his answer. He was given until 4 p.m. the next day. When he was brought back to the council the next day, he was asked again if he was ready to renounce the heresy of his writings and teachings. Luther responded by saying, Unless I am convinced by the testimonies of Holy Scripture or evident reason, for I believe neither in the Pope nor councils alone, since it has been established, they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures adduced by me, and my conscience has been taken captive by the Word of God. And I am neither able nor willing to recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. The Roman Catholic Church responded by issuing an edict branding Luther a heretic and offering a reward for anyone who captured him and turned him over to the Roman Catholic Church for execution. Not long after the Diet of Worms, Luther began working on a German translation of God's Word, believing that the people should have a Bible in their own language. Luther's work in translating God's Word in the language of the common people influenced a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale spent many years of his life in hiding as he had been branded an outlaw by the Roman Catholic Church. 1536, Tyndale was tied to a stake, strangled to death, and then his body was burned. His crime was heresy against the Roman Catholic Church. The heresy he was found guilty of was translating God's Word into English. Other reformers suffered similar fates for the sake of the Word of God. It was their conviction the Word of God belonged in the hands of the people of God. They were willing to live and die for the doctrine of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura basically means Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the authority for the doctrine of the Christian faith. Scripture alone determines what we believe and how we live. Scripture alone, not councils, not papal decrees, not church tradition, not what granny said, not what culture says. Scripture alone. Consequently, sola scriptura demands any doctrine of faith and practice for the Christian life must come from the word of God. It cannot come from anything else. And if we are to be a people of the book, we must ensure everything we believe comes from the Word of God. Today we're going to look at why this is so important. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 14 through 17 is what we're going to read. Uh, should be on page 915 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And I'm actually going to read all the way down to chapter 4, verse 5, but we're not going to look at those verses today. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable and equipped for every good work. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, you self-restraint in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
title of the message this morning is The Authority of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for all you've given and all you've done. We thank you for your word. We are thankful for men like Tyndale and Wycliffe who gave their lives to help ensure we have your word in our language. We're thankful for the nation in which we live that, Father, we have a just almost an embarrassment of riches of your word in our language, in our preferred translation. We are thankful, Father, that we have gathered here today in a place where we are safe and we are free and we are able to study your word and let it be the authority for our lives. We are thankful for your Holy Spirit who teaches us and instructs us out of your word. We are thankful for Jesus who has come, who has lived, who has died and has risen again. Gives us hope, gives us salvation, brings healing to our hearts and to our lives, sets us free from the enemy's snares. And enables us to bring great glory to you in all we say and all we do. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say what you want said. Nothing more, nothing less. Let our hearts be surrendered to you. That your word would prick us in the way we need to be pricked. Bring us to repentance where we need to, be re- where we need to repent. Strengthen us and encourage us. And let us be a people of the book we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, an apostle, wrote this letter to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, someone Paul had mentored and placed in Ephesus to be a pastor of the church there. Most of what I have read says Timothy was timid. And this is the reason Paul speaks often about his need to take courage. Second Timothy is the last letter of the apostle Paul. He is nearing the end of his life and there is some concern about Timothy's faithfulness and to the end. And so this letter is written in part to encourage Timothy to remain faithful to Jesus. Now to understand Paul's flow of thought for what we're looking at today, we kind of have to understand what has been said in the letter previous to where we are. Paul starts the letter by reminding Timothy of his godly heritage he received from his mother and grandmother. Paul explains to to Timothy that God had not given him a spirit of timidity, but of power, love and discipline. Because the spirit God had given Timothy, he is to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, continue to proclaim the gospel, entrust the gospel to other men who would suffer for the gospel, proclaim the gospel and entrust the gospel to other men so that it would stretch and reach throughout the ends of the earth. Now, if you've ever read anything about Paul, you know, Paul was not known to sugarcoat anything. Paul was plain spoken. And brutally honest in the way he wrote and what was expected as we set out to follow Jesus. We see a measure of this brutal honesty as he writes to encourage Timothy to remain faithful to Christ. Paul goes into detail in the letter to let Timothy know continuing in faithfulness to Jesus is not going to be easy. There will be hardships. He must continue to live a pure life. There will be difficult people to deal with. And Timothy must respond to all of these things in a way befitting a servant of the Most High God. That brings us to chapter 3, 
where Paul's brutal honesty is again displayed. Not wanting Timothy to think that life is going to get easier the longer he goes on, Paul explains things are only going to get worse. Depravity of man will abound. There will be false teachers who encourage people in this depravity. Despite this, Timothy is to continue in his faithfulness to Jesus. One of the reasons Paul is so hard on this and expects and is so clear about this and is calling on Timothy in these ways is because he doesn't want Timothy to end up like Demas, who started well but abandoned Christ because he loved the world. What we see in verse 14 is, I think, the kind of the central theme to what Paul is trying to get across. Continuing the things you have learned, become convinced of, knowing of whom you have learned them. If Timothy is to continue in his faithfulness to Jesus, he must continue in the things he has learned. His learning started with his mom and grandma who taught him the word of God. Timothy had been taught the word of God from a child. And then he came to faith in Jesus. And then he went with Paul, where Paul continually taught him the word of God. If Timothy wanted to remain faithful to Jesus, then what he must do is remain faithful to God's word. He he cannot remain faithful to Jesus if he is not faithful to God's word. The main idea I want us to get today is this. Our faithfulness to the Son of God depends on our commitment to the Word of God. Now this statement is true whether we're talking about individuals remaining faithful to Jesus. God's Word is clear that if we want to have a part in all that belongs to Christ, we must remain faithful unto the end. But we cannot remain faithful to the end if we are not committed to the Word of God. Our continued faithfulness to the Son of God depends on our continual commitment to the Word of God. But this is not only true of an individual, this is true of a church. If a church wants to remain faithful into the end, if they want to to bring God glory, do the things God would have them to do, then they too must remain committed to the Word of God. As a church, as Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, our continued faithfulness to the Son of God depends on our continued commitment to the Word of God. So we may ask, well, why then is God's word so important to our faithfulness to Jesus? And this passage gives us three reasons, but we're only going to look at one today because of time. First reason, the word of God reveals the son of God. The word of God reveals the son of God. Verse 14 and 15 are really the only verses we're looking at in this section today. He has learned them from a child he knows character of his mom and his grandma. He knows the character of Paul. From a child he has known the writings which are able to give him wisdom which led to salvation through faith in Jesus. Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother that taught him God's word when he was a child. God worked through the teaching of his word and brought Timothy to a place where he believed on Jesus when he heard the gospel. And he received Christ as his savior and he embraced him as his Lord and he lived in a way that demonstrated those things were true. Right, here's something to, to get from this. I think is really important. All Timothy's mom and dad had. As they taught him the word of God. Was the Old Testament. Right, Timothy was young. When Timothy was a child. Jesus was probably still in the process of ministering. 
or it was shortly after his resurrection and ascension. The gospel message was going out at the time Timothy had been taught and came to faith in Christ. But the books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had not yet been written. The part of God's Word we call the New Testament didn't exist. What they taught him was the Old Testament. So how did the Old Testament make Timothy wise to salvation? It's found in faith in Jesus Christ. Well, to understand this, we have to understand the overall theme of all of God's Word. Not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but, but all of God's Word. There is one grand theme, but we don't see it right away. right? Because God's Word begins by telling us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the process of creation, God created a man and a woman. And he put them in a paradise called Eden, where they were to tend and keep. And they had a near-perfect relationship with God. All of their needs, and I would imagine all of their wants, were taken care of. They were allowed to eat freely of any tree in the garden, except for one, which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them the day they ate from it, they would surely die. And we've mentioned a little bit what happened next. Satan came along, tempted Eve by casting doubt on God's word, contradicting God's word, convincing Eve God was keeping them from something good. So Eve took the fruit, she ate it, gave to her husband who also ate. And in that moment, Adam and Eve died spiritually. God's word said Adam and Eve knew they had sinned. And so they were ashamed of what they had done. They were ashamed of their nakedness. And they tried to cover up their sins by covering themselves. But God didn't leave them alone in their sin. God came looking for them. Calling for them. Where are you? And when God came, as the wording would lead us to assume God had done many times over. They did something they'd never done before. They hid from God. God called to them and they hid. Eventually, God called them out. He came, they came to him and then he called them on the carpet about their sin. And as God gives out the, the, the reprimand, there were consequences for Adam. Life would be difficult. There were consequences for Eve. Birthing would hurt. And there were consequences for the serpent. And as God was giving out these consequences, he gave a promise. I will make enemies of you and of the woman, of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the very first promise of the Messiah who would come and save the people of God from their sins. From this first promise of the gospel, the rest of the Old Testament builds to the time when the Messiah would come. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we're given glimpses of what the Messiah would be like and, and what he would do when he came. We're given a picture of God selecting a people. And from this people, the Messiah would come. And God watching over this people and choosing one individual king from this people from whom the Messiah would come even further narrowed down. And he would be like this and he would do this. And it gives all of these things about what the Messiah would look like and what the Messiah would act like and where he would come from and where he would be born. And as in the Old Testament, the people of God in the Old Testament, they looked forward to that day. They they longed for the day when their Messiah would come and they were always looking for him. They were always waiting for him. They were always hoping on his arrival. And this is what Timothy was taught 
as a child. Timothy wasn't merely taught the Ten Commandments and to memorize them. Timothy wasn't merely taught the names of the twelve tribes of Israel to memorize them. Timothy was taught the grand theme that there's a Messiah who's coming. And when this Messiah comes, he will crush the head of the serpent. And in the process, he himself will be bruised. He will be the suffering servant who takes the sins of the people upon himself. He would have a ministry of miracles. The lame would walk. The blind would see. The dead would rise. The Messiah is going to come and he is going to set right all the things that went wrong on that day in the Garden of Eden. So all of that teaching on the grand theme of the Old Testament, it prepared Timothy to believe the message that Jesus was the Messiah who came just as God said he would. Jesus was the Messiah who came and did all the things God's word said he would do. The Son of God is the grand theme of the word of God. From start to finish, God's word focuses on Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Everything in the Gospels focuses around Jesus. It reveals that he has come. And everything from Acts to Jude, talk about the result, the fact that Jesus has come. This is what it means to our life. And then the book of Revelation reminds us Jesus is still coming again. God's word always points us to Jesus, who is the only hope for salvation we have. This is the reason faithfulness to the Son of God depends on our commitment to the word of God. As we study God's word or we listen to preaching from God's word, we are confronted about issues in our life that hinder our faithfulness to Jesus. We're confronted about issues in our life that prevent us from being faithful to Jesus. Through God's word, we are urged to repent of those things and cast them out of our lives and recommit ourselves to Jesus. Through God's word, we are, pers- we are encouraged to persevere in our faithfulness to Jesus. Don't give up. Don't back up. Be faithful unto the end and you'll share in all that belongs to Jesus. Through God's word, we are drawn deeper into our relationship with Jesus. God's word tells us more and more. No matter how much we may think we know about Jesus, there is more yet we don't understand. And God's Word is always revealing the goodness, the greatness, the majesty, the holiness, the beauty, the grace, the glory of Jesus. And urging us to believe, repent, hold fast, love Him more, give Him worship, spread His message. It is always drawing us deeper into our relationship with Jesus. These things do not happen Without our commitment to the Word of God. When our commitment to the Word of God fades, our faithfulness to the Son of God will always fall by the wayside. Always. I mean, write it down. Always. Christian history is littered with souls. Who thought they could abandon a part of God's word. But hold tightly to Jesus. And they did not. The moment we abandon our commitment to the word of God. We begin a slow retreat away from the son of God. 
The book of Amos says, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? It pictures if we say we're going to go north, then we both have to go north. I can't go north and you go south and we say we're walking together. Well, Jesus is walking in this way. This is the word that reveals him. This is the word that testifies to him. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is how he works. This is what he has commanded. This is what he expects. He is always going in this direction. And the moment we say, well, I'm not going in that direction. I'm going to go in this direction. We depart in our walking with Jesus. Our faithfulness to the Son of God depends entirely on our commitment to the Word of God. This is true for us as individuals. This is true for us as a church. You or I, as individuals, we want to be faithful unto the end. We must remain committed to the Word of God. If we as a church want to be faithful unto the end, we must be committed to the Word of God. God's Word is meant to be the foundation of our lives. The foundation of truth. The foundation of our faith. The foundation of our values and our priorities and our actions and our reactions and how we speak and how we treat other people and the kind of relationships we have. And every other aspect of our life comes from this is what the word of God says. The word of God is the foundation of our relationship with Jesus. Now, this is important because. There's a growing movement in our day among professed Christians to undermine the authority of God's word as the foundation for our lives, for our doctrines, for our beliefs, for our relationship with Jesus. And the way I've heard it explained, it goes something like this. I have a living relationship with Jesus, so I don't need rules that come from a book. Now, there's probably other ways that it's worded, but it always carries with it that same idea. All I need is Jesus. I don't need the Bible. If I have Jesus, I don't really need God's word. And that sounds really spiritual, I'll admit. And and it sounds something that would be hard to argue with. For who's going to be bold enough to say, no, no, Jesus isn't enough. I certainly don't want to be the kind of person who would make that statement. I'm convinced Jesus is enough. But if that would be your mindset, I have Jesus and I have a living relationship with him and all I need is Jesus. Then I would ask some questions and I would ask you to take time to answer them honestly. For instance, how do we know Jesus? Well, according to what we see in God's word, we we know Jesus by faith. Okay, well, where does faith come from? Well, according to Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the words of Christ. Now, not only that, but God's word clearly teaches there will be and there have been false Christs. Matthew 24, 24. God's word teaches in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan can masquerade himself as an angel of light and can make his apostles seem like preachers of the truth. And then 
in Timothy, just not far from where we are. Maybe it's first Timothy and first Timothy. God's word teaches there are deceiving spirits who teach doctrines of demons. How do we sort through the false to get the real? How do we sort through the the false Christ to find the real Christ? How, how do we sort through the they satanic masquerade to get to the, the real truth? How do we get through the false doctrine to get to the true doctrine? How do we be sure that what we're believing is not a doctrine of demon? And it doesn't come from a deceiving spirit. Well, then there must be something that we can evaluate all things by, huh? That there must be something in which I can say, no, that's not right. Because this says otherwise. Uh, Because if there's not, if there's not an absolute standard that we can test all things by, then it's all just sort of willy-nilly. And we can all do whatever we want to do. And Jesus can be whatever we want Him to be. He can be the universal Christ that's present in every religion in the world. That's fine. Because there's no absolute standard. He can be someone who is highly enlightened. Not unlike Buddha, but not quite as good as Buddha. If, if there's no absolute standard. He can be a high prophet of, of Muhammad, but not quite as high, or of Allah, but not quite as high as Muhammad if there's no absolute standard. He can be the brother of Satan who came up with a plan of salvation that the father liked. And the truth was revealed through an angel to Joseph Smith if there's no absolute truth. Could be just... A vision of just whatever we think in our minds. It's all an illusion. And so what we convince ourselves is truth becomes truth if, if there's no absolute standard. Certainly, we know Jesus through faith and by experience. I promise you, I believe experiences with Jesus and the Spirit and the Father are real. We see them in God's Word. But any experience we may have and any faith we may have must be examined by God's word. Because if I have an experience that contradicts God's word, my experience is not God. If I have faith that contradicts God's word, my faith is not true faith. Faith is only valuable if it's in the right object. We don't know Jesus and what he's like and what he's done and who he is apart from the word of God. Our faithfulness to the son of God will always depend on our commitment to the word of God. Our faithfulness to the Son of God will always depend on our commitment to the Word of God. So another question I would ask is, is God's Word just a book? Just a book written by men, goat farmers at that. They don't need the rules of an old book. And those who say that act as though God's Word is just a book like any other book. Like if you go to... Walmart and you just pick up any book there and you have it. And lo and behold, it's no different. It's just a book. You you take the meat and you spit out the bones, right? It, it's like eating fish. But it, is this the case with God's word? Well, 
Again, not according to God's word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. A lot goes on there we don't have time for, but notice the word of God is not just a book. It is living and active. It is alive. It's more than just pen and ink. It is alive. It is active. And it has just as much power to work in our lives today as it did to work in their lives when they originally read it. As we read God's word, or as we hear God's word taught, God's word has the power to bring change into our life. God's word has the the power to change us so we can be more like Jesus. But it's not just in, in our actions. Certainly God's word deals with our actions. But notice what he says to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word can not only change the things we do. God's word can change why we do it. God's word can change our motivations. It can change our attitudes as we do it. That is a powerful book. Listen, self-help books may change your actions. And self-help books may teach you to, to make professions that are supposed to change your thoughts. But the reality is, you and I, we can't just say, I believe this and that's the way it is. If we don't believe it. Because deep down, that other thing is there. Think about the issue of love. We all have people we don't like. And you can't just say, I like them. And you're going to flick a switch and I love them. I just have that agape love for them. I, I've determined that's what it is. And say that. It's not real, is it? They still get on your nerves. And when they talk, it still makes you angry. You're still offended by their actions and their attitudes and the things they say. Why? Because we don't love them like that. And we can't just determine to do it. So how does, how does love for those kind of people, people that irritate us, people that oppose us, how can that come into being? Because we know from history it exists. How can we have it? God's Word can reveal that our attitudes are wrong. It can reveal things and through the Word and the Spirit we can be changed. And we can genuinely love people that we can't stand. We can genuinely have a change in our attitudes toward them and toward other things. We can serve them joyfully. God's Word can do things no other book can do. Because God's Word is the book the Spirit of God works through. God's Word is the book that God works through. God's Word has the power to speak to us. I mean, in... In ways that are just almost like, that's amazing. I mean, that's, I'm having this problem and I read God's word and it's like, there's the issue. Holy cow, I never would have thought that. I never would have come to that conclusion. God's word calls us back to faithfulness to Jesus when we stray. God's word calls us not to stray to begin with. God's word reveals things to us that we just aren't going to know and understand on our own. I mean, the reality is, the Christian life isn't overly intuitive. Right? I mean, it's not gonna, we're not just gonna flow through life naturally and live like Jesus wants us to live, are we? I mean, we're not gonna flow through life and turn the other cheek. We're not gonna flow through life and deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're not going to flow through life and love those who hate us and do good for those who persecute us. 
We're not going to flow through life and leave vengeance to the Lord because He'll to repay what needs to be repaid. That's not how we live. We're not going to flow through life and understand that God became a man and died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and now calls us to repent and believe. We're not going to flow through life and understand any of that. God's Word reveals all of these things to us to push us to Jesus, to keep us faithful to Jesus. We cannot do without God's Word. God's Word is far more than just a book. Our faithfulness to the Son of God will always depend on our commitment to the Word of God. Then a final question I would ask. What did Jesus say? Right? If Jesus is the standard and all I need is Jesus, what did He say about this? What did He say about what should be the foundation of our lives? Well, we're not left to wonder. Turn to, to Luke 6, page 787. Luke 6 and verse 46. Jesus says, Now why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock. And when there was a flood, the river burst against that house, and yet it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And the river burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. So what does Jesus say is the solid foundation for our lives? He says it's our, our word. It's his word. The way to, to build a solid foundation for our lives is to hear his word and act on it. To, to do what he says. So it's not even enough to, to hear it. It's not even enough to say, I have a Bible. Therefore, my life is built on God's Word. I have a Bible. This is a precious book. Look at that. It's a good Bible. I, I have a Bible. I love my Bible. This, this Bible is, without doubt, the Word of God. I, I trust it. I believe it. Uh, I think it's the best book ever written. I think everybody ought to have one. Well, do you read it? Well, no. I, I haven't read it in probably ten years. And I don't really do anything that it says. But golly gee, it's a good book. Well, that's not the foundation for our lives. It's the foundation as we hear it and as we do it. Now, the storms, I like this. The storms come into everybody's life. The one that stands, the one that falls, depends on the one who has heard and done what Jesus has said. Jesus says the word of God is an essential part of our lives. Jesus said to have the right foundation that will enable us to stand in the day of temptation, in the day of struggles, in the day of trials, is to hear and heed His Word. So if we begin to say something like, well, I don't need the Bible, I just have Jesus, we're taking a position Jesus did not take. We 
are saying, I know more than Jesus knew. For Jesus said, his word is indispensable to our lives. But here's the key thing. not Well, not the key thing. Here's an important thing. Look at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He begins by asking us why we would even bother saying we belong to Jesus. Why would we say we are disciples of Jesus? Why would we say we're Christians if we aren't going to do what he said? I mean, the the bare basics of what a, a Lord has the right to do is to command. And if Jesus is Savior, and if Jesus is Lord, He has a right to command, and His commands are revealed. And if I'm not going to do what He has said, Jesus says, I might as well stop saying Jesus is my Lord. I might as well stop saying Jesus is my Savior. That sounds harsh. That's the point. And this isn't the only place we see this sort of an idea. We don't have time, but go to Malachi and read Malachi 1. God has told them how they're to make sacrifices and how they're to bring animals and what kind of animals they're to bring. And and they're not doing it, but they're bringing something. They're bringing in the blind and the lame and the maimed of their flock. And they're offering that to God. God says it's disgusting to him. God says he would rather they shut the gates of the temple, let the fires go out and stop all the pretense. As opposed to just doing what they want to do rather than what he said. What Jesus is saying here is kind of a continuation of that idea. Don't say you're a Christian if you're not going to do what Jesus said. Don't say he's your Lord if you're not going to obey him. Don't don't even bother pretending. Just be honest that you're a heathen, an unbeliever. But don't claim to be a disciple of Christ if his word isn't going to be the foundation of our lives. Our faithfulness to the Son of God always depends on our commitment to the Word of God. Now, something interesting in this is that Jesus does say we have to act on it. So it's not enough to hear, it's not enough to believe, we have to to do what it says. God's Word always has authority. And since it has the authority of God, which we'll talk about next week, it demands a response from us. Every time we hear it, every time we read it, Jesus tells us what this response is. He says, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify of me. Yet you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. This is such a, some ways a great statement, some ways a sad statement. Religious leaders knew the Bible. They knew God's word. They they believed God's word in many ways. But they wouldn't obey God's word. And let it reveal Jesus to them so they could go to Jesus and find the salvation that he has. And yet they thought, I'm saved because of how much of God's word I know. I'm saved because of how much of God's word I've memorized. How I can argue the finer points of God's law. We have a similar problem In our day, there are many people who, again, they have a Bible. And they think it's important. And it probably has a place 
of prominence and preeminence in their home so that when people come in, they can see they have a Bible. And they will tell you, I, I love that Bible. That is an important book. They might even have gone to children's church and Sunday school and church, and they know, they can tell you the name of the books of the Bible in order. They even know the minor prophets. They can tell you about the Ten Commandments. They can tell you about Jesus and the Christmas story. And they can tell you all of these things. And the Bible, because they have a Bible, they believe that their salvation hinges on the fact they have that book and it's an important book and they know things about that book. Meanwhile, what that book is urging them to do is repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're not. They have a Bible. It's an important book. Everybody ought to have a Bible. Everybody ought to know a little bit about the old good book. But they don't obey it in the very first thing it says to do. To come to Jesus that we might have life. Hey, that may well be somebody in here today. Raised in church. You know the Bible. You've heard it. You've learned it. You've memorized things from it. You would say, yes, the Bible is an important book. I have one. I love it. But you've never truly followed the Bible to let it lead you to Jesus. Where you would repent of your sins and believe on Jesus and be saved. That final step is the difference between life and death. That final step is the difference between salvation and damnation. Don't let it be true of you. That you examine the scriptures because you think you have life. Meanwhile, those scriptures are testifying about Jesus and urging you to repent and believe and you are unwilling to come to Him that you may have life. The way we come to Jesus is through repentance and faith. Right? It, we don't get to make... Again, man, I wish I had more. I would like to have two hours to preach, but we don't. The way we come to Jesus is the way He says. And He says come in repentance and faith. And that's the only way we come. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. God is right. We're wrong. God is right about sin. Our sin. Serious, it's against Him. It's the reason Jesus died on the cross. God is right about the Bible. It is the foundation for our lives. God is right about the Bible. It testifies about Jesus and urges us to flee to Him and be saved. God is right. And if we believe anything else, we're wrong. So we, we turn. I mean, it, it, repentance is literally change. You're, you're walking this way to hell. And you're like, oh, God's right and I'm wrong. I want to go to where God is. And so we turn. And we begin moving away from that and toward God, believing in Jesus. Now this is where it gets tricky. Believing in Jesus is not saying, well, the Bible says Jesus lived and died and rose again. And I believe it. That's a part, but that's not all of it. What the Bible says Jesus did is the only hope we have for salvation. And what hinders many people, particularly in, in our part of the world, like in, in western Oklahoma, where we are the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, by golly, I can do it mindset. Jesus alone 
saves us. Part of believing in Jesus is saying, my salvation is found in Christ alone, not, not by my good deeds, not by my repentance, not by the fact I have a Bible and bless God, I love my Bible, not by the fact I come to church, I've been baptized, I prayed at an altar. No, no, I'm saved by Jesus. The only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. I am saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And when I get to heaven and I stand before the Lord, all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for my salvation is going to go to Jesus. And none of it is going to go to me. We are not going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to go... Well done! Oh my goodness, you were awesome! Instead, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to bow down before Jesus and say, well, You were awesome. I can't believe you kept me. I was horrible at times. And if we don't have that kind of faith in Jesus that He alone saves, my friend, we have not crossed over into salvation. If you are holding to anything that you have done, Anything that you have contributed to finish or complete or make your salvation possible, you are not saved. Jesus alone saves. This is really what it means to be unwilling to come to Him. That He may give us life. We're unwilling to let go of our self-righteousness. We're unwilling to let go of our self-sufficiency. We're unwilling to let go of the fact that we had a hand in it. And we're unwilling to say, Jesus alone has saved me. And if you have not made that final step, that is the step you must take today. Jesus is calling. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. Friend, are you tired of trying to be good enough? Come to Jesus. Are you tired of the weight of your sin? Come to Jesus. Are you tired of worrying about what happens when you die? If you're sure you're saved, come to Jesus. Are you just weary in soul because life is hard? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today. That's what Scripture, all of Scripture is urging you to do today. Come to Jesus and find life. Let's stand.